Well, we, were, we received news in December that Operation Iraqi Freedom had finally come to an end, and many of our troops have come home. Um, but the larger war on terror still continues today. You may not realize this, but we still are fighting war in Afghanistan, the Philippines, Somalia, Sahara, um, and many places of the earth. So the greater war on terror still continues today. Let me just pose this question before you. Have you ever stopped to consider the magnitude of spiritual warfare present in the world today? The magnitude of it. Two of my favorite Christian authors have provided some stimulating thoughts in regards to this. The first one is by A.W. Tozer. And he says this. He says, Men think not of the world as a battleground, but as a playground. We're not here to fight. We're here to frolic. We're not in a foreign land. We're at home. What'd you say? Is this world a battleground or a playground? Another author, John Piper, says this. He says, Very few people think that we are in a war today that is greater than World War II or any imaginable nuclear war. Few reckon that Satan is much worse an enemy than any earthly foe or realize that the conflict is not restricted to any global theater but is in every town and city in the world. Who considers that the casualties of this war do not merely lose an arm or a leg or an eye, but lose everything, even their own soul, and enter into a hell of everlasting torment? He says, we have stopped believing that we are in war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peace and prosperity. Do you believe that life is war? You see, Paul, near the end of his life, wrote First and Second Timothy. And you see clearly, as, he is, as he's wrapping up, he knows his time to die is coming soon. You see this wartime mindset on his thought and in his letters. Look at a few of these. In First Timothy 1. He says, this, I char- this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good ch- conscience. Look at this next one, 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And then 2 Timothy 4, 7. The end of this book. And he writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is not a warfare part of life and a non-warfare part of life. Life is war. And you know what? Even as I speak right now, this war is ever-present, even in this room. I don't know all of the situations and circumstances that each one of you bring today, but I know this. 
that warfare, spiritual warfare, is present among us today. This war is not about life and death. It is the battle for your soul and the soul of millions around you. So the point that I want to share with you today, the main truth, the thrust of the sermon, as we're going to see, is that we should stand firm in the strength of the Lord by clothing yourself with the armor of God. Stand firm in the strength of the Lord by clothing yourself with the armor of God. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 today. And let me encourage you, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, we've got Bibles placed on the ground. I'd encourage you to grab one and follow along. It's on page 979 in the Bibles that we have there for you. And I've got three truths as we walk through the text I want to share with you. And the first one is this. Truth number one is that we should stand firm by trusting in the strength of the Lord. Stand firm by trusting in the strength of the Lord. We see in Ephesians 6, verse 10, as Paul finishes this, this great book here and starts this section, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We see that Paul has a very God-centered view of this warfare, and he's pointing people to the greatness of God to have a proper understanding and perspective here. Now, as we move through here, there, well, what I want to do is I want to look at the nature of this war, the power of this war, and then we're going to look at the weapons of this war. So um, the, the nature of this war, I want to highlight first of all here that the devil is your enemy. We see here early on in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now I want to just pause here for a second. And, and provide a brief just kind of overview of some of key verses on what the scriptures say about who the devil is and what his character is. So John chapter 8, look at what John says here about the devil. It says, you are your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Here's the, you need to grasp this and know this early on, is that the devil is the father of lies and he is a deceiver. That is what his goal. He wants you to believe lies and he wants to deceive you in many different ways. Let me show you another one. Revelation chapter 12. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan. Now, just a little side note. Genesis 3 is the first time we're introduced to, to this serpent, right? Adam and Eve, and that the serpent comes and tempts. We see here this serpent is connected with the devil and Satan. So you may be saying, well, why do you call the serpent the devil or Satan? Well, we see Scripture does that here in Revelation 12. It says, The ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Again, what is it highlighting? He is a deceiver. He is the father of lies. Now, I've got a few case studies for you that I want you to engage here with me. Let's go back to Genesis 3. In the very beginning, God created Adam and Eve, and he gave them one command. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. If you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, in Genesis 3, the serpent comes along. And has a, well, we, we eavesdrop in on a conversation between the serpent and Eve. And it goes like this. Eve, 
Did God really say that you cannot eat of any fruit of the trees in the garden? And you get this conversation going on, and, and Eve replies back, and says, God, God says we, we cannot eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know what Satan replies back and says? He says, you will not surely die. Now do you see what's going on here? God says, you eat of the tree and you will die. Satan, the serpent, comes along and says, you will not die. You've got conflicting truth claims here, and he is trying to deceive not only the truth, he's lying, because we know the end of the story, right? They do die. He's lying. Not only that, he's deceptive into thinking that something that God has said is not good is actually good for them. You know what, what Satan says to Eve? Let me just read that for you real quick. In Genesis 3, this is what he says. He says, uh, verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He, he lures this bait out here and says, No, to eat of it would be a good thing. You'll now know good and evil. Here's how he's deceptive. He will deceive you to thinking that something God has said is not good is good. He's a liar. He's deceptive. He makes evil appear attractive, desirable, perfect, perfectly legitimate. Have you seen this at work in your life? I've seen it at work in my life when I've been tempted to sin. It's, it's laid out there as something that is good, that is attractive, that would satisfy you. You know what? He even tries to get a foothold in believer's life through character that is consistent with their old way of life. In Ephesians, look at Ephesians 4 here real quick. I'm continuing on this first case study. Ephesians 4, verse 26 says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. What's going on here? Paul is highlighting that continual sin opens up the door for the devil to come in and get a stronghold in your life. And you know what? Satan knows that he, you know, salvation is secure. He can't take away salvation, but he knows this. He knows that he wants to keep believers in sin as long as he can keep them. Because they'll be useless for the kingdom as long as he can keep them that way. He will deceive you, even as a believer, into thinking that sin is good. Have you ever heard this quote, the devil made me do it? Can we respond that way? I mean, let me ask you this. Who's responsible? Satan tempts Eve. Who's responsible? When God shows up to Adam and Eve after they eat of the tree, God tells, Adam, did you eat of the tree? This woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit. And then God goes to Eve. This serpent tempted me. You see this putting off excuses. But you know, as we read through the scriptures, you know who's ultimately accountable for sin? We are. None of us are free to say, man, I was tempted, and it's his fault. 
We, we are squarely responsible. Even though he is a great liar and tempter, you're responsible. He may be a really good job at tempting you and deceiving you, but ultimately you are responsible for your own sin. Now let me take you to a case study number two. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has just been baptized, and he heads into the desert, and he's fasting. And he was tempted three times in the desert by Satan. And do you know how Satan tempts him? He quotes scripture to him. Three times he quotes scripture. And, and Jesus three times responds, It is written, and he quotes from Deuteronomy. Now, the details there, I would encourage you to go and read that. It's, it's a total reversal of what happened in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Satan tempts and they disobey. This is Jesus, who is the new Adam, who's now coming along, and he provides and proves faithful. But the point of, is this. Satan is twisting truth to tempt Jesus, and he will do that with you also. It's also given us a hint on how we fight spiritual warfare. If he's going to twist truth, what are we going to combat it with? We're going to combat it with the truth. You've got to know the truth if he's going to be a liar. And then one final case study I want you to think about is the case of Job. In Job chapter 1, Job was a righteous man. A book found in the Old Testament before Psalms. It says he was a righteous man. He had a great family. He had prospered. And then we get this conversation between God and, the, and Satan. And it goes like this. Hey, hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And you know what Satan says? Satan says, God, if, if you took all of these material blessings away from him, he will curse you to your face. And God says, okay. You can have, you can have your way with Job, just don't put your hand on him. You can't touch him. And all of these things come upon him he couldn't take his life he couldn't kill him obviously but you he a lot of his family dies um all of his great wealth is taken away and job proves faith we actually even has a conversation with his wife and his wife says job just curse god and he says shall we not receive both good and evil from the lord blessed be the name of the lord now what was satan trying to do here he was trying to deceive Job. He was trying to get him to think that when all of these are coming upon me, he was trying to get Job to say, if God was good, he would not let this happen. He was deceiving, he was trying to deceive Job to say, hey, a good God would not let this happen to you. But Job knew that God was faithful. And so he responded in the right way. How, is, how have you been deceived? Where, what areas in your life have you been deceived by Satan? As we talk about spiritual warfare today, um, spiritual warfare has to do with sin. It has to do with the lies of Satan. What lies are you believing? What sins have been held up as attractive that you have been running after and you have fallen into deceit? This is the nature of this war, and it's ever-present before us. Even as we speak, there are thoughts, there are temptations that are going on through your mind. 
Even maybe for some, this may be your first time actually hearing the truth of Jesus Christ. And I know that He wants to tempt you. He wants to distract you and get you thinking about something else so you do not hear this truth that will radically change your life. Not only does, is He the Father of lies and a deceiver, He also wants to hinder the progress of the gospel. Look at this verse here. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why do people not embrace the truth of Jesus Christ? They don't see it. They don't see it. Why? Because he's blinding the minds of unbelievers. He is feeding lies to them and questioning the goodness, the faithfulness, the character of God. Maybe that's even you today. Maybe you don't see it. Man, this Jesus thing, man, what's it all about? He blinds the minds of unbelievers. So the devil's our enemy. The second thing I want to highlight here is the battle is spiritual, not physical. It's spiritual, not physical. This doesn't mean that Satan can't work through people and circumstances in life. But it's important for us to realize that we're not physically taking up arms. Or as we look at this armor, armor here, we're not physically holding swords or guns and proceeding with this war. You even see with Jesus, when he came to be arrested, he, he's telling Peter, man, put your sword away as he cuts the dude's ear off. It is a spiritual war that can only be fought with spiritual weapons. So that's the nature of this war. Let's go into the power of this war. We see here Paul in Ephesians 6 highlighting the power of God. And the truth is God is stronger. If the nature of this war is not physical but spiritual, then we need a supernatural power that's going to be stronger than all the powers of the wicked. Now, if you're in Ephesians Flip with me a few pages back to Ephesians 1. I want you to see this. Ephesians 1, verse 19, says this. Ephesians 1, 19. And what is, he's, he's asking them, he's praying that they would know certain things. He said that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him above I'm seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is all. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin. On the cross and in his resurrection, this, the power of death is broken. With Jesus raising from the dead, he's saying this is the power of God. He not only dies to break the power of sin, he raises from the dead to give you hope of eternal life. Sin is defeated, evil is defeated, but it's not destroyed. We live in this age of the, all, of the not yet already, already not yet stage. Which means we already have a lot of the benefits of a relationship with God. We can know God. We can have forgiveness of sin. We can talk about being saved even though the end is not even coming. We haven't even died yet. There are already benefits, but the not yet. We still live in a world that sin is ever present among us and evil is still working. But we 
do know this. We know whose foot has everything under control. It says they have put everything under his feet. He is seated at the right hand of God. The seated is a picture of he's seated, he's finished, it's been done, and he controls it all. He is the Almighty One, the Powerful One. This is good news. Because it could be depressing as we just start talking about spiritual warfare and the, bre- the devil, like a, 1 Peter 5 eight says, the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. I mean, just think about that for a second. That this is the nature of who he is. He is prowling, still today, prowling, looking to devour. That could be very depressing, but we have encouragement in the might of the Lord. He controls even Satan. It's also encouraging to remember Satan is not God. He is a created being. He was a fallen angel. He was created as an angel, a fallen angel who rebelled against the Lord. He he does not have divine power. There is only one God. Our God is stronger. In Ephesians 6, going back there, I want to highlight a few things in verse 10 that are significant In verse 10 it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. This this be strong is a passive present command. Be strong. He's highlighting, he's not saying, hey, just pull your, your bootstraps up and be strong. He's highlighting this strength is not inside of you, it is outside of you. It is, it is strength from another. The way you are going to be strong, it's in the strength of His might. So he's commanded you to be strong with the strength of the Lord. And not only is is it a passive, it's also a present, which is highlighting this ought to be the continual pattern of our life, that the way we live, the way that we are strengthened and empowered daily is not within us, it is from the strength of the Lord. So that every day we live till the day we die, we draw upon God's might, God's strength. We cannot live apart from it. So we've seen the nature of the war. We've seen the power of this war, the power of God. And now I want to look at the weapons of this war. The weapons of this war. Look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 10 here. 2 Corinthians 10 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And this is good news. As we look at the weapons of this world, divine power to destroy strongholds. What are the strongholds in your life? There may be people here today, I don't know your situation, that you may have some type of stronghold gripping your life. I don't know, maybe there's some men in the room that would say, you know what, pornography is the stronghold that is just gripping, sucking all all of the life out of me. Maybe... Maybe it's pride. What is the stronghold? Maybe it's, it's, it's your pursuit of, of feeling accepted by others. What is your stronghold? What, what are the sins that have, have, that have just gripped your life that you feel like, man, there is just no way 
impossible that I could be freed from. I'm so deep. You feel like there's a, just a huge snowball going out of control. And there is good news for you today. The weapons that we have to destroy this have divine power. There is nobody here with a stronghold that is outside of the grace and power of God to eradicate it out of your life and to set you free. There is hope for you. At one point in my life, late high school, early college years, I had a stronghold that about destroyed my life. And I'm here today to testify that the grace and power of God set me free and broke it and eradicated it. And He can do the same for you. And so we see the weapons of this war are supernatural. They're the power of God. And He highlights this in verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. This armor here, I mean, get the picture. Paul's probably writing Ephesians. He's probably in jail when he's writing this. And th this may have stemmed him using that analogy of the armor of God. We also see this armor of God in the Old Testament. If you look at Isaiah 11, it's the, the, the branch, the promised branch that's going to come is is has this armor. You see in Isaiah 59 in the Old Testament that God is described with this armor. So this armor that we're to put on is the armor that the promised Messiah and the Lord in the Old Testament wore. He says, this is the armor that you put on. And it's similar to Ephesians 4. So flip back with me here for a few moments. Go to Ephesians 4. I want you to look at verse 20. Because this language of putting on is this, this clothing yourself imagery. You're to put on clothes, but instead of clothes here, he's calling it the armor of God. Ephesians 4, verse 20 says this, But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We actually talked about this when we studied Colossians a few months ago. We talked about how you put off the old self and you put on the new self. Those who have come to faith in Christ, that we have been forgiven of our sins, we're to take off of our take our grave clothes off. We've got all of this sin and junk. He says, put it off. You're a new person. You're a new creature. You now put on the righteousness, the holiness of God. That is the what that's what you are to put on. And, and Peter O'Brien says this. He says, essentially then, to put on the new self is, is the same as donning the armor of God. And so it's almost as if, I mean, this was central to Paul's theology of sanctification. Put off, put on. And now he wraps up Ephesians, almost and going back to this idea, but he's given us a new imagery by using the armor of God. So when he's saying, put on the armor of God, this is the imagery, this is the background. You put off your grave clothes, you're now putting on righteousness, holiness, and this new character, this new creature that you are in Christ. So you, you put on, now this is important, whose armor is it? It's God's armor, but you put it on. Whose power is it? It's His power, but you put it on. Do you see this, this stand language throughout these few verses? 
I want you just to look at in 10 through 14. How many times do you see the word stand? You see in a verse 11 that you may be able to stand. In verse 12, at the end of that, um, sorry, not verse 12, verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may withstand in the evil day. Having done all, stand firm. Verse 14, stand. You get this, this imagery of, man, in, in the battle, it's intense, but we're not fleeing. We're not running. We're standing firm. We, we've got our armor that's going to protect us. What might be our temptation? I think our temptation is to flee. We see this spiritual warfare and we want to flee. We want to go find a cave and kind of seclude ourselves to, to get away from this war that's out there. Man, you can't flee from this war. It is ever-present. But do you see the implications if you flee? There are millions that are in bondage and you have the only means that will set them free. The gospel. If we flee, how will they be set free? As we're going to see here in the armor in a few minutes, to put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. I mean, if we don't stand firm and go and fight, who will? And so you get this imagery of stand, stand firm. We do this in the power of God. Now I want to think about this for a second. I've got another quote from Tozer that I think will really help us just to hammer this down a little bit better. I want you to see this. It says, Although he is a dark and sinister foe, dedicated to the damnation of humans, I think he knows that it is no use trying to damn a forgiven and justified child of God who is in the Lord's hands. So, it becomes the devil's business to keep the Christian spirit imprisoned. He knows that the believing and justified Christian has been raised out of the grave of his sins and trespasses. From that point on, Satan works that much harder to keep us bound and gagged, actually imprisoned in our own grave clothes. He knows that if we continue in this kind of bondage, we will never be able to claim our rightful spiritual heritage. He knows also that while we continue bound in this kind of enslavement, we are not much better off than when we were spiritually dead. So as we kind of just man, wrap up this first section, man, if this is you today, if you're, if you're still wearing the grave clothes, if you've been bound in sin, that's exactly where Satan wants you. As you look at spiritual warfare in your life, you know what would be the greatest victory today? Would be for you to say, my God is stronger and greater than any stronghold that you want to tip me in my life. And I'm saying no and yes to God. And Jesus is Lord and I'm following him. I'm confessing, I'm repenting, and I'm embracing him. Truth number two, stand firm by putting on the armor of God. What we see here, this power of the Lord, the, the way we receive this power, be strong in the, 
and, and the strength of the Lord and His might, how do we receive that? It is through taking this armor. We are empowered as we put on the armor of God. And so only after you make these preparations can you stand firm in the war. So let, let's walk through this armor piece by piece here. Beginning in verse 14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. You see, I'm, I'm wearing a belt today. I always try to wear a belt. The imagery here is if you're going to go to war, you've got to have your clothes secure. I mean, it's, it's this idea of, man, you're not going to be chilling in a, in a lazy boy out in the middle of war. You're going to be fighting. You're going to be engaging. And it's going to be active. I actually get this imagery of my son. You guys, Emmett is like a toothpick. And for us buying clothes for him sometimes to get him long enough and to fit him, you'll see him when he's running, he'll have one hand back here, you know, and it's, it's trying to keep his pants up so he can keep up with, with his buddies that are running around probably this morning. You, we actually had a belt on this morning, and we put the belt of truth on him. Um, but sometimes you may see him running. If you haven't got your belt secure, how can you be as effective in the war? So you've got this idea of secure. So underneath the armor, this belt would have covered... Your thigh area would have been protecting underneath the rest of the armor that you have. It would have held everything together in the middle. And he describes this as the belt of truth. Now, it shouldn't take us too hard to get this, right? Satan is the father of lies. He is a deceiver. And so if you're going to be empowered with the strength of the Lord, you have to put on the belt of of truth. You've got to know the truth, live the truth. But this is ultimately highlighting believers' integrity and faithfulness. So, yeah, we should know the truth, but he's talking about living and being faithful, being true, being a person of integrity. What might be the opposite of this? Hypocrisy? If it's not the belt of truth? Maybe it's the belt of hypocrisy. How might the devil use hypocrisy in your life? Think about this. I lived in this for a while. My dad was a pastor, and I felt a lot of pressure to man, look really good for people. So I was really good. I, had a, I did a really good job of fooling a lot of people in my church. Well, you, you can, you, look, you, you may even have many of us fooled. I mean, you can come together and put it together on Sunday morning. You can dress up really nice. You can fix your hair. You can get your clothes on. You can put a smile on your face. You can hide anything that's going on the, on the inside. And I did that for a long time. And you know what hypocrisy does? Hypocrisy, you come to church, you put, a, you put everything on. You, you want everybody to think that you're great. And, and you fool us, and we believe it, and you leave. And you know what, what's so bad about that? Is if it's really false and you're the one that's in the greatest need, you fooled us into thinking that everything's together, and you walk out and nobody has a clue of the strongholds that's going on in your life. Hypocrisy does not do you any good. You know what? So that's what Satan wants to use in your life. No, don't put the belt of truth on, man. Just fool those guys. Make them think that you're really living the Christian life and that you're, you're doing pretty good. You know what would destroy this and be a victory today? confess sin maybe for you today it's you know what 
man, I've, I've put a pretty good show on. And you know what? I want everybody to know, man, Satan is not going to have any stronghold over us. You, you know what destroys strongholds? Sin coming out. You know what? For pornography, you guys, man, some of you guys that are struggling with pornography, you know what will kill it that's really going to get to the root? Until you come out and say, you know what? This is the stronghold in my life, and I want you to know it. It will rule you. Sin thrives in the secrecy. Strongholds rule in the quiet corner, in the secret closet. And what's going to come out today? You can have a victory. There can be a defeat in your life over Satan today just by coming out and going up to, maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's somebody you know close and saying, you know what? I've been putting on a pretty good show and I'm tired of it. Satan's not going to have this stronghold in my life anymore. This is what's going on in my life and I want you to pray for me. Will you help me? That is the first step to putting on this armor. You've got to be real. You've got to be authentic. What belt are you wearing today? What belt are you wearing? We move on here. You've got the belt of truth. He continues on. He says, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate is the defensive armor. It would have covered this section right here that you would have worn. And it would be tempting for us to think the breastplate of righteousness would be God's righteousness. That we're trusting that He's righteousness and that's what's going to protect us. But Paul's thrust here is not on God's righteousness, but on your own ethical righteousness. We've already seen that, right? We looked at Ephesians 4.27. Be angry and do not sin and give no opportunity for the devil. When you are righteous, when you pursue holiness, it doesn't give the devil any room to come in your life. But you know what opens up the door for the devil to come in and wage war? It's continual sin. Continual habitual sin in your life. Now, don't get me wrong. Hey, we are all sinners and we blow it daily. What he's talking about here is a continual progression of putting on holiness, of striving after holiness. This is what we're supposed to put on. Sanctifying righteous living guards believers' hearts against the assaults of the devil. So let's pursue holiness. And that'll give the devil no room to work, not only in your life or in your marriage or in your relationships. The third one here. Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I love Isaiah 52 here, which is probably a lot of what Paul is drawing on. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, you're our your God reigns. Let me ask you this. Do you have a willingness to share and announce the gospel of peace? Notice what he says here. He says, having your feet, having the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We're talking about getting ready for war. There's a, a war out there. Is there a readiness? Is there a willingness to share the gospel of peace? Get the imagery here. War and peace. We all want peace, right? And as we talk about this spiritual warfare, what brings peace? Well, you've got to know the God of peace. You see, what brings war is sin. Why do we war against God? It's because sin separates us from God. Today, this may be your first time hearing the truth of the gospel. What separates you and God is sin. 
God created you to know Him, love Him, obey Him. Sin separates this relationship. You cannot be close with God if you have sin in your life. So Jesus comes. He lives a perfect life. He never sins. And He dies on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. So that if you believe, you trust in Jesus, your sin is forgiven and you can now have peace with God. This is the gospel of peace. We're going out and telling people, you can have a relationship with God. There can be peace. The war can stop if you will embrace Jesus. Is there an eagerness, a willingness, a readiness to share that? I guarantee there are probably people that live in your home that you work with or you're friends with that need this peace. And you know what? This war is not going to end. Wherever you go, you say, okay, well, I'll just leave Boston where you're going to meet new people that need this gospel of peace. It ought to be the continual just, man, when we wake up in the morning, it's our thought, man, it's war. Man, when we understand that life is war, it changes the way we view things. Yeah, I may go have a blast with my family doing something, but I'm always going to know that there are people that I'm going to be interacting with but that, that do not have a relationship with God, that there's enmity there, and that they can have peace. And there ought to be a willingness in my life, a readiness, a willingness to share this message. This makes sense, right? Because what is one of the main schemes of the devil? To blind the minds of unbelievers. You know, if you're an unbeliever today and you want to see, I pray that as I preach, you see Jesus as the greatest treasure of your life. And if you embrace him, God opens blind eyes. He opens it as we speak and declare the word. The spirit of God is powerful. We're going to see here in a second. As we speak the word to open your eyes to see the beauty of God. Trust him today. So we've got our feet ready. Now let's look at this next one here. In verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The skins and the hides that covered these shields back in the day would be soaked in water before they went to war. So that if any of the flaming darts hit it, it would put it out, wouldn't catch on fire. What does he call this? The shield of faith. Why does he call this the shield of faith? And what significance does faith have in our life? Listen to this. Who or what you believe determines every action you take in life. Case study number one, Eve. Who does she believe? God or Satan? Satan, and she eats from the tree. Jesus, Matthew 4. Satan's twisting scripture, he's got the word of God. What does he believe? He believes the truths of Scripture. Who or what you believe determines every action you take in life. Today, who or what you believe is going to determine what you do in life. So the shield of faith is taking up the truth of God and believing it. When you believe the truth of Scripture, it has power to change your life. So if you're going to have great faith, you've also got to know the truth. Man, if you're being tempted and deceived by Satan, you've got to know, hey, what does God say about this? 
And you may say today, man, I just, where does faith come from? How do I get great faith? You know what Romans 10, 17 says? Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And so you come to the scriptures and as you read, you are granted faith. Let me give you an encouraging word today. He is a shield to those who take a refuge in him. The Lord is a shield. Believe, trust. Take up the shield of faith. He continues on in verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. You guys know I was a football player in college. I love kickoff. You run about 60 yards, full speed, and you just blow whoever gets in your way up. Or sometimes you get blown up. Um, you know what helps me to go full speed? I got a helmet on. You know what that, now, a helmet's not the all secure, you know. You can still get injured. You see a lot of injuries. But a helmet will protect you. I can run full speed, and if I hit somebody the right way, it'll protect my head. And what does it give me? It gives me confidence to give it everything I have and go and wrap up and make a tackle, and it'll do the same for you in war. You will not engage this warfare unless you have this secure helmet. Do you know that you've been forgiven of your sins? As Ephesians 2 says, that for by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Have you believed and been saved? If, if your salvation is not secure, you will not engage in this warfare the way you're, the way you're supposed to engage. So you take this helmet of salvation. Hey, if you've got questions about your salvation, come grab one of us at the end of the service. Grab Tanner or myself or one of our other leaders. We will love to sit down with this gospel of peace and, and share with you more about how to know. Do you know you've got a relationship with God? You take the helmet, and as you take up the helmet, what's next? You've got the sword. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This sword is sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of, when it says here the, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, the Spirit works powerfully in conjunction with the Word, but it's highlighting here spoken words. This, the, 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 the word used for word here is highlighting word, the words that are spoken. So it's talking about as we proclaim the gospel, as we engage in this war and proclaim the gospel, the Spirit works powerfully to draw people to Himself. So we've got the readiness now. Now we've got the message, the gospel, the word that we pro proclaim. We use the sword to attack and make new conquest in God's cause. And the way we combat the lies of Satan is with the Word of God. Now let me just give you a little side note here. You, many of you heard last week that we started a church-wide Bible reading plan. And I would encourage you, man, there may be nothing greater you do in the new year than to grab one of these Bible reading plans over here. If we don't have one over here, come see me. We can shoot you an email with it. And say, you know what, I'm going to read the Word of God so that I can know it and defeat the lies of Satan. And then finally, the final truth, and I'm going to go through this quickly, is stand firm by praying continually. Look at verse 18. I want you to just see in 18 and following, how many times is the word prayer mentioned? Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer 
You've got the word supplication, supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication four times in two verses. Pray, pray, pray. Not only that, do you see the word all? Pray all times with all prayer, with all perseverance for all the saints. You see Paul's thrust here? He's saying, man, if you take up this armor, but you do not come to God in prayer, you will not have power. Where does the power come? It comes as I've got my helmet, my belt, my breastplate, my shield, my sword, my shoes, and I come to God needy, expecting, and I say, God, you make it happen. When we come to God in prayer, we're acknowledging, man, that we can't do it, but He can. And we're relying on His strength. Keep alert. This is wartime imagery. Keep alert with all perseverance. Don't give up. The war is never ending. Be alert. It reminds me when Jesus went to pray before he was crucified. He says, hey, you guys stay here. Be alert and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Be alert. Pray. I would even say this. We do this as we take up the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God gives us the content of our prayers. And it's what the will of God we pray. And one of the greatest ways to pray is to take, as you read, to pray what you read. You're praying the will of God. And it is powerful. I might give you one more shameless plug. On January the 22nd, we're going to have a time of corporate prayer with our church. Sunday morning before church, 9.15 a.m. Man, it would, it would be awesome if everybody here just showed, man, I want to I pray. I see the importance of prayer. We want, we want God to go mightily into war and to demolish strongholds among our church and in this city, and we're going to pray and we're going to pursue them. Man, come join us. Three words I'll close with that I believe sums up what Ephesians 6 is about. Display, declare, and pray. What is putting on the armor? It's putting on the new self. It's displaying the godliness, the new character of who we are. As we declare, we've got our feet ready and we've got the sword of the Spirit, the, 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 the Word of God that we're speaking, we're declaring, and we're doing this as we pray that God would move. Man, there, I don't think there's any greater way to enter into this new year. Standing firm. Let's engage this war. Let's display Let's declare and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask as we respond in song here that strongholds would be broken. God, would you search our hearts? Would you reveal our sin? Would you set prisoners free from bondage to sin? Would you empower us to be ready and willing with the gospel? Would you burden us with those around us? God, would you give us a greater discipline in the new year for prayer, for calling upon you? And God, we just pray and beg that you would move in power in a way that we cannot even imagine. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.